As we approach God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we ask for your assistance this morning. We thank you that your word is holy. Your word is pure. It is true. We can trust every word of it. And I pray that the words found in our passage this morning would speak loudly to us and that you would enable us to be more conformed to the image of Christ as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're returning to that chapter again this morning. Indeed, it is a shame that those who claim the name of Christ will preach the gospel for financial gain. There are those who are simply in it for the money. They are known as prosperity preachers or those who advocate prosperity theology. They put themselves forward as those who teach the Bible, who dispense God's wisdom, who represent Christ. And yet, they are getting rich off the donations of millions of people. With one word, they flatter their listeners, and with the next, they pickpocket them. They tell them that if they want God's blessing in their life, then they should donate to that preacher's ministry. And it's in this way that preachers like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Benny Hinn, and others rake in millions of dollars to fund their lavish lifestyles, all in the name of Christian ministry. Make no mistake, friends, these folks and many others out there are false teachers and do not preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They are guilty of seeing godliness as a means of gain, which Paul explicitly describes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. They ultimately despite their claims, show a love for money and not a love for the Lord. Now, this is nothing new, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were seen as the religiously devout leaders of the day. All of the populace, the whole, all the people looked to the Pharisees, looked to these men for how they lived their lives. They respected their moral lifestyles. They revered their passion for the obedience to God's law that they exercised. And yet, as we're going to see, at their very core, they were lovers of money. They were hungry more for money than they were for righteousness. They engineered their lives so that they could serve God and money. However, if you were here with us last week, you know that's not possible. Jesus made that clear. In this chapter, Luke chapter 16, we saw last week uh, an extended discourse by Jesus, including a parable on using worldly wealth, on using the financial resources we have in this life and how to steward them well. At the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 19, there is a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, also speaking about riches and poverty. And our passage this morning lands right in the middle of those two discourses, verses 14 through 18. The context in this chapter is clearly about money. It's about wealth. 
But as you'll see, a few of the verses that we're going to cover this morning don't seem to immediately tie to money or tie to wealth. And so we'll need to look at how they relate to what Jesus is saying here about money. So before we uh, begin examining the passage, let's, let's read it this morning. And so let's pick up in verse 14. We'll read through verse 18. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now you'll notice that verse 14 begins with a description of the Pharisees. And then in verses 15 through 18, it's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And so before we look at Jesus' response, where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning, we first need to look briefly at verse 14 and the description of these Pharisees. In particular, Luke gives us two descriptions of these men. The first is that they were lovers of money. The second is that they were mockers of Jesus. First is that they were lovers of money. Second is that they're mockers of Jesus. Look first in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. They were lovers of money. They were listening to all that Jesus said, but all that he said about money and looking to be good stewards of it and spending it well, not for ourselves, they didn't like very well because at their core, they loved money. This is an editorial statement given by Luke that helps us to reveal exactly what is at the core that is motivating and driving these men. The word, the phrase that we have in our English Bibles, who are lovers of money, is all one word in the Greek. And so Luke, in one word, reveals that the righteousness that these men put on display before everyone around them was really a sham with one word. They were not truly righteous. They only had a pretense of righteousness. Jesus had already indicted them on this charge in Luke eleven, thirty nine, 39, when he said, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Jesus already saying that inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Friends, make no mistake, these men who claimed to be followers of God and paragons of virtue of obeying the law were at their heart idolaters. They did not worship and serve God. They worshiped and served money. Even though they looked godly and righteous to all those around them, they were as wicked and as unrighteous as the Gentiles. Now, their love of money manifested itself in, in several different ways. Based upon the parable that was going to follow this of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, we can conclude that they were stingy. They, they, walked by, they walked by the poor, did not pay any attention to them. They greedily hung on to the riches that they had, refusing to generously open their hand to the hurting, to the needy, and to the hungry right in front of them. They also showed their love of money 
by exhibiting the same attitude as the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, you'll remember. Because, you see, the prodigal son looked like he loved money. He got the money from dad. He ran off. He spent it all. And it looked like, oh, that, that guy just wants the money. He's in it for the money. He just wants to spend it on himself. But as we saw, the older brother had the same lust and greed for money himself. Except his greed led him to stay and to be diligent and to work the fields so that he could get it all himself. So, too, the Pharisees saw their financial success as a blessing from God. See, we must be doing the right thing. We're obeying God, and God is blessing us. Look at all the financial wealth we have. They thought it was a sign of their righteousness. But remember what Jesus had just finished saying in verse 13. He said that it's impossible to serve God in money. Only one of them can be your master. The Pharisees cannot be lovers of God and lovers of money. Those loves are mutually exclusive. And they understood that. And so, what do you get when you mix a powerful preacher with uh, powerful men who love their money? You get defensiveness. And that leads us to the second description we see in this verse. Not only were they lovers of money, but they were mockers of Jesus. It says... When they heard these things, they ridiculed him. The word ridiculed uh, takes on the imagery of turning up one's nose. You could picture them upon hearing what Jesus said, and they go, kind of turn up their nose, they look down at Jesus. There's disapproval. It's a visceral reaction that stems in the heart and manifests itself outwardly. And I believe verse 14 is directly tied to verse 13, as I've already indicated. Look at verse 13 again. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Pick up the contrasts. Love and hate. Devoted and despised. Then Luke writes this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so we're left asking ourselves, to whom are the Pharisees devoted to? Whom do they love? Well, it's clear. They love their money. And who is it that they despise? Where is their hate directed towards? It's to God. It's to God's Son, Jesus Christ, the representative who's standing there in the flesh right in front of them. And so they have made their choice. They have hated and despised the true master, the true Lord, and instead they're serving the false master, the false idol of money. It's in the face of this response by the Pharisees that Jesus replies in verses 15 to 18, and it's from this reply that I want to draw out some lessons for us. I believe in particular from verses 15 through 18, we can see four truths about God Four truths about God that Jesus wants us to see so that our hearts would be reoriented away from money and toward God. He is showing a path to the Pharisees and by implication to us as well. How is it that we are to respond when we see the love of money creep up in our own hearts? So four truths about God that we need to grasp this morning. The first truth that Jesus reveals is, number one, that God reveals or God knows the hearts of all people. 
God knows the hearts of all people. We see this in the first part of 15. Look at it. He says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You'll notice in the face of such ridicule, Jesus didn't jump up to defend himself per se. He doesn't return evil for evil. Oh, yeah, well, you Pharisees, you know, he doesn't go into that. But rather, as the God-man, the one who's truly God and truly man, he is able to cut through the clutter and get right to the heart of the matter. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are those who justify themselves before men. To justify oneself means to make oneself appear righteous before other people. It means you're seeking to convince others of your righteousness. In this case, the audience for this righteousness display is the other Jews that the Pharisees lived around. Jesus calls them out. You men are all for show. You're just doing it so that others can see you and applaud you. They want to be known for their righteousness. Their godliness is not a genuine desire to honor the Lord, to serve Him and to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to Him and say, Lord, take all of me. I want to be all reserved for you. Rather, their righteousness, their seeking to do good was simply a public relations campaign. Now, as we look at these men, we can easily be disgusted by such rank hypocrisy, can't we? Like, how, how dare they? What do these guys think they are? This is, we, we naturally are disgusted by such hypocrisy. And yet, if we're honest, hypocrisy can be a part of every one of our hearts. There, every time we sin, in one sense, is a, is a bit of hypocrisy in which our lives are not lining up with our confession of faith. We all like to be known as good people, don't we? We all want others to see us as good, righteous, upstanding people. And we can often try to keep that front going even when our motives might be less than honorable. This is easy to see in children, right? The child who offers a piece of cake to a sibling, sounding so generous, here you go, I got this for you but they've already secured the biggest piece for themselves? <laughs> or you think of the couple that makes a donation to a, a nonprofit that's doing a lot of good in the world, but with a, what they're really looking for is for their name to be exalted and put on something somewhere or advertised somewhere as they are the ones who gave that money to that organization. We see virtue signaling, maybe you've heard that term, all throughout our society. Corporations, individuals, public officials seeking to signal their virtue, according to the virtues of this world, in which they want to be seen as righteous. They signal their virtue so that others can see it and applaud them. Friends, this is baked into who we are as humans, is we want to put on a good front so that others would see how good we are. And therefore, we must look and examine our own hearts. Where does the self-justification reside in us? Where is it that we're going through motions, that we're going through religious activities, that we're posting this and talking about that in such a way that we're seeking to get accolades, we're seeking to get attention from others and applaud and a pat on the back? Friends, this gets us at the heart 
and of our motivations. Do you desire to truly be holy, or do you desire more to be known as holy? Do you want more to be known as a good person or to be truly good in the eyes of God? Isn't that the issue? It's all about the eyes of the Lord. We should want the approval of God, not man. And this is the truth that Jesus reminds the Pharisees of. He says, look at it, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God sees all. He sees our motives, the good and the bad and the ugly. There is no one, friends, who can escape the all-seeing eye of God. He not only knows all that takes place visibly, but He knows all that takes place invisibly in the intimacy of our own hearts. He knows what goes on in your hearts. He knows what you think about when no one else can see. He knows what goes on inside of us, and nothing can escape His knowledge. This truth is affirmed all throughout Scripture besides just this verse here. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God tells Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or in 1 Kings 8, 39, Solomon prayed this. He said, you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God is omniscient, which is a word that means all-knowing. There is not one shred of knowledge that God does not know. And friends, the fact that God can see our hearts, the fact that what Jesus says here, God knows your hearts, in one sense should be absolutely terrifying to us. We can put on a front before others. We can go through many religious duties and rituals. We can play the part, but we can't hide anything from God. We can try to show our religious devotion to others, but God knows what's going on inside of us. I would suspect that many of us don't even take time to think about our hearts, to think about our motives. We just go through, and we've never stopped to examine, why do I do what I do? Why do I say those things? Why do I act the way that I act when I go to church? Why do I act the way that I act when I go to work? Why do I act the way that I act when I step into my home? Why do I do that? What is motivating me? What are the desires and the motives of my heart that's driving me? Be assured that even though you might not think of your motives, God sees them. And His assessment is what matters the most in the end. And so this is the first step to being released from the idols of our hearts. In this case, Jesus is talking about the idol of money. In effect, Jesus, Jesus says, listen, Pharisees, you can fool other people, but you can't fool God. And never forget that. So I ask you, whose approval have you been living for? Have you come to grips with the reality that God knows you more truly and deeper than anybody else? And do you live in light of that, living before Him, Coram Deo, Latin for before the face of God? No doubt, friends, there's a mixed bag in us, right? Until heaven, when we're fully glorified, we don't have perfectly true and pure motives. And so we just need to be on the hunt all the time and be praying as the psalmist did, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any evil way in me. Help me to see where my motives are not right and true. And may I purify them. May I repent of them. May I be different. 
So the first truth that Jesus reveals about God is that he knows the hearts of all people. But the second truth he reveals that's important for us is that God hates the pride of mankind. God hates the pride of mankind. And we see this in the second half of verse 15. Look at it with me. He says, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Someone could theoretically hear Jesus' first statement about God knowing the hearts of men and say, So what? What's the big deal? Why, do you, why is that a big deal, Jesus? Here he gives the reason why we should care about what God thinks about our hearts. It's because he's not neutral on the topic. God is not neutral about what goes on inside of us. God has an opinion. It says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The what is exalted among men refers to the arrogant exaltation of man before others. It's the external righteousness that the Pharisees sought to produce and engineer. Now, what is exalted in each society over time and around the world can change in terms of the cultural values, but the fundamental desires of the heart of mankind do not change. The desire for affirmation and praise from others, the craving for exaltation and elevation drive men and women of all ages and all societies to advance their own interests. And Jesus makes it clear that the self-promotion and the self-justification is an abomination in the sight of God. He hates such pride because it is idolatry. Friends, we can often look to out there and say all those things that people out there exult in is what's an abomination before God. And yet we need to recognize that we, as unfinished projects, people who still have a sin nature that we fight with, that pride can rise up in our hearts just as well. And that we can exalt things in us and about us that are still an abomination to God. In fact, it's a sad testimony that many in gospel ministry and supposing to have godliness, they advance their own interests. Like the Pharisees of old, they can look religious, and yet God knows their hearts, and what he sees is an abomination. Friends, I think even in the prosperous West, this whole issue of money and possessions can be somewhat of an acceptable sin in which we can pursue more and more things, and it's somewhat accepted, and we look the other way. But when it becomes an idol, it is an abomination in the sight of God. An abomination is a word used in the Old Testament to describe God's intense hatred of that which is sinful and wicked. God hates what is exalted among men because it's in competition to Him. These things are exalted because they are served instead of God being served. He only He deserves our worship and praise. And so Jesus is teaching the Pharisees, and by implication us, that we should care about what God thinks about our actions and our motives. It's His sight that we must value because it is to Him that we must give an account. Friends, each and every one of us must stand before God, the Holy Judge, and give an account for how we have lived and how we have spoken. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of, of, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, we must look to his opinion and his reckoning, not to the reckoning of man, not to look at what this world and this society exalts. Friends, we are bombarded every day with messages from this world about what they exalt and therefore what we should celebrate. Ads found everywhere exalt the possessions of products the experience of exotic vacations, the indulging of food and entertainment. On top of that, the major institutions of our society, such as higher ed and the news media, Hollywood, exalt all sorts of things from LGBTQ ideology to critical race theory. On top of that, our governor here in California and our president and their respective administrations have gone out of their way to exalt the evil of abortion. Friends, everywhere we turn, mankind is shouting in our face what their exalted values are. And this is why we need statements like this in Scripture, that what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Don't be fooled into thinking otherwise. Don't be fooled into thinking that you must praise what the world praises. We exalt what God exalts because every single human being must give an accounting to the Lord. So the question for you this morning is, will you align yourself with the God of heaven in which you will receive a reward one day or will you instead turn and seek to exalt in what this world exalts and receive immediate reward of the praise of the crowd? See, it's immediate gratification or eternal gratification. Which do you want? So Jesus has given us truth one, that God knows hearts of all people. Truth two, God hates the pride of mankind. Let's look thirdly now at the third truth. God urges the repentance of all people. God urges the repentance of all people in verse 16. Now, verse 16 marks a curious transition in our text. He goes from condemning the Pharisees to talking about the law and the gospel. And it seems like a strange change of topic, and it's not immediately clear what he means in the last phrase of verse 16, where he says, everyone forces his way into it. So the big question is, why does Jesus bring this thing up here? Is he just switching topics to a random thing? No, I think he's continuing on the same topic. As we've seen, the context here is about how we deal with money. The Pharisees were proud of the way that they obeyed the law. Remember, they saw themselves as the righteous ones. They were the experts. They defined themselves, defined what obedience looked like for the rest of the people. They were Moses followers to the nth degree. And Jesus wants them to see that, you know, a change has taken place that this is not the same old dispensation. This is not the same old covenant continuing on. Something has happened because I have arrived. He says with the arrival of his ministry, an epoch of God's plan for human history had begun. It's no longer the era of the old covenant, but it's the era of the new covenant. 
And he highlights this change by saying first, you'll notice, look at verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets was a way to talk about the Old Testament, all that included from Genesis to Malachi. And this was in play until John, he says. Now this could mean that it ended right before John. It could mean that it included John as the last part of it. And I think it's a little bit of both. John was a unique figure, John the Baptist. He stood with one foot in the old dispensation and one foot in the new dispensation. He was a bridge character in the sense that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. In other sense, he was the first of the gospel preachers. And so Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until John. But since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, he says. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached. We have record in John, Matthew chapter 3 and 4 that, that John began preaching to Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began preaching the message of the kingdom. Jesus picked up that same message and said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says this. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was sent to Israel to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. But what does this mean? Well, the kingdom of God is a large biblical theme that goes all the way back to Genesis and really incorporates the entire Bible. The theme of Scripture is the kingdom of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are pieces of information that were revealed concerning the kingdom and its king that continue to crystallize Israel's anticipation. When is the king going to come? And what is the kingdom going to look like? And it took the Old Testament that continued to build that anticipation and continued to point towards one who would fulfill all of those longings and fulfill all expectation. When Jesus arrived, it was clear that he was that promised king. Recall the words that the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Jesus' mother, recorded in Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel said this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It was clear from the beginning that he was the promised Messiah. He was the king who would sit upon the throne and usher in the kingdom. And so when Jesus began his ministry, he, like John before, began to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom. Hey, the kingdom is at hand. It's imminent. It's near. He performed miracles, demonstrating that he was the spirit-anointed Messiah. He was the rightful king. He cast out demons. He calmed storms. He raised the dead. He healed the sick, all in manifestation of God's power in him. And yet, all of those things were not to simply wow the populace. It was there to humble them. Because they should realize and drop on their knees and recognize that God was in their midst. The thing that Jesus continued to preach to the nation was that they must decide what they will do with him. They can't just say, wow, and be a fan. They must repent and become a disciple. They have to renounce everything and embrace him. They should strive to enter the narrow gate. They should believe in God's only representative, Jesus the Messiah. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the king had arrived and that all who place their faith in him will have entrance into the kingdom guaranteed. 
To enter the kingdom requires knowing the king. And Jesus stipulated what it meant to know him. People couldn't just hang around him. They couldn't just be acquainted with him. They couldn't just like him. They needed to give up everything and follow him wholeheartedly. And this is what all people were pressed to do. All people were pressed to make a decision. All people were pressed to repent so that they would find entrance into the kingdom. And I believe this is what the final phrase of verse 16 is talking about. The English Standard Version here translates it, and everyone forces his way into it. But I rather think it should be translated as the footnote there. If you have the English Standard Version, you'll notice there's a, a footnote there that drops your eye to the bottom of the page, and uh, which another possible translation is, everyone is forcefully urged into it. Everyone is forcibly urged into it. Or as the Christian Standard Bible translates it, everyone is urgently invited to enter it. This speaks, I believe, of the forceful and urgent way that everyone was being pressed to enter the kingdom through repentance and faith in Christ. And this forceful urging is seen in Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 13. In fact, I want you to flip back there just for a moment. Luke 13, verse 24. Listen to Jesus' call to the nation. Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. And then he will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last." I want you to notice the connection between the pressure to enter that we see at the beginning of this passage as it relates to the final destination of the kingdom of God one day. Jesus is pressing the nation to repent of their sins, to enter the narrow door, to believe that he was their only hope. Now, flipping back to Luke 16. Even though Jesus has gone to heaven for the present time and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God mediating on our behalf, he is still calling people everywhere to repent, calling people everywhere to turn to him. He's still urgent in his offer of forgiveness of sins to all sinners everywhere. The urgent pressure is still there. The question is whether or not we will respond to that call. Will we try to shake it off? Will we try to ridicule Jesus or the message of the Bible by saying, oh, it's not that big a deal? Try to ease our conscience from the, the prick of guilt that we feel? Or will we see what Jesus is trying to tell us here? That there was a major historical change that took place from the Old Testament to the new, the new covenant era of salvation. Will you see that all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your expectations will only be fulfilled in the kingdom that Christ will bring? 
It cannot be found in this life. It cannot be bought with money and riches of this world. It is only found in Jesus. And so will you renounce the lie that money can buy you happiness here and now? Friends, all idols must be repented of to enter that narrow door. We can't carry anything in. We must reject the dead things of this world and embrace Christ. He offers himself to us if we would repent. These Pharisees can't claim, well, you know, Jesus, oh, we follow the law. We follow Moses, so we're okay. No, the, the law was fulfilled in Jesus. The law looked forward to the perfect lawgiver who was Jesus. And so, Knowing his statement that he just made about the law and the prophets, that they were until John and a new thing has begun, would cause these religious leaders to go, wait, wait, hold a minute. Are you saying that we should get rid of the law? The law, Moses should be, you know, silenced? Jesus takes his comments a step further. And that gives us our fourth and final truth about God in our text this morning. And that is that God expects obedience to his word. God expects obedience to his word in verses 17 and 18. Even though, as Jesus just said, there has been a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, Jesus is careful to affirm the truthfulness and the timelessness of the law. In other words, just because the law and the prophets pointed to him and that he fulfills all to which they looked forward does not mean that the law should be set aside or ripped out of the scriptures. And he expresses this by saying, look at verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. That word for dot refers to a simple serif line off of a letter, a little flick of the pen, in other words, every single part of the law is important. It shouldn't be tossed aside. There is nothing in the law that should be removed or that would become void or, or would fail. This means, friends, that no Christian can say that the law of our Old Testament, found in the Pentateuch, the first five books, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, no Christian can say that those passages, that scripture is worthless literature. In fact, there was a heretic of the early centuries of Christianity named Marcion, and he so believed that everything was new in Jesus that, uh, that he firmly believed that it was wrong to read the Old Testament, to still have the Old Testament. He advocated New Testament Christians only. Unfortunately, there are some Christians today who seem to hint at something very similar to that. A few years ago, Popular preacher Andy Stanley said that Christians should unhitch their faith from the Old Testament, somewhat abandoning it in their view of how to live life in this world. But I believe Jesus' comment here, as well as the parallel in Matthew chapter 5, strongly argue against such a position. Jesus, yes, fulfills the law. Yes, he completes it. But its essence continues on through him. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so, friends, for us today, New Testament Christians, the, the, the Old Testament law is no longer binding upon us as a legal document. We don't have to look through all the stipulations and make sure we're being uh, perfectly obedient to all those things because those were given to Israel 
at Mount Sinai as part of the Old Covenant. But, and so as believers in Christ then, we are no longer under law but under grace, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Hebrews says the Old Covenant has become obsolete because of the new. There is a new thing that has begun. But the law is included in our Bibles for good reason. And friends, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training in righteousness. And that includes the Old Testament law. It was written for our instruction. And because of Christ, it's changed from being a legal document to being a wisdom document, to being a teaching document. There is much we can learn about God, His character, and how we are, should, should live in light of His character from those laws. Not in strict adherence to the letter of it, but to the spirit and the principles behind it. And, show, and so, Jesus wants to show that his teaching and his new administration does not mean an abrogating of the law, a tossing aside of all commands, an antinomianism. And so he gives an illustration of a law that continues in effect. And the law he chooses to show is the law regarding divorce. Now, it may seem strange to us, Jesus, why did you suddenly jump to a law on divorce? But apparently, he thought that this commandment was a great example of how the truth of the law is fulfilled in him and the principle continues. In that day, the popular view regarding divorce and remarriage was that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for virtually any reason. There were those who had a more conservative view, but the popular one was the liberal view. They would come up with all sorts of reasons to justify a divorce. And it was mainly in the hands of the men that could divorce their wives, not the wives that could divorce their husbands. And so they, they, there were those that talked about, you could divorce your wife if she burnt a meal. You could divorce a wife if she didn't give you a son, or if she disrespected your mother, or if uh, simply she, there were, uh, she didn't look as beautiful as other women. I mean, it became ridiculous, but it was more than ridiculous. It was immoral and had drifted far from God's design for marriage. You know, the marriage was instituted by God in Genesis chapter 2. God's intention there, not stated explicitly, but clear uh, by the, the, the way it's stated, is that marriage is for a lifetime. And Deuteronomy chapter 24, which picked up the law for Israel, was that there was a slim allowance given for divorce. Jesus revealed that slim allowance was given, Matthew 19, he says, was because of their hardness of heart. But, it, but the slim allowance there was for the grounds of uncleanliness. But over time, that uncleanliness began to be interpreted very broadly. But the commandment that Jesus gives here in verse 18 once again elevates the status of marriage to the place that it belonged and the place that God intended. He makes it clear that marriage is for a lifetime and that to divorce for petty or trivial reasons, as the Pharisees were known to do, would result in committing adultery if there was a remarriage. Notice what he says, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Adultery occurs when a person is sexually unfaithful to his or her spouse engaging in sexual activity with someone else. Therefore, Jesus is saying that divorcing for unlawful reasons does not actually break the covenant, does not actually dissolve the, the marriage bond for as much as that couple would like to think that it does. 
oh, I found a reason, break the, break the marriage, and off, and I can go do whatever I want and marry somebody else. And Jesus says, not so fast. Those petty reasons you came up with don't actually break the marriage. Because if you step into a second marriage, you're actually committing adultery in the eyes of God. In God's eyes, you're still connected. You're still married. The covenant, the bond is still with that person, that first person. Now, other scripture passages reveal that there are some instances in which Christians are allowed to divorce. We don't have time to go in detail this morning. Just to mention Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 19, Jesus said that divorce is allowable for the case of sexual immorality. Paul added another reason in 1 Corinthians 7, that is desertion by an unbeliever. If an unbelieving spouse wants to leave and leave the believer behind, Paul says to let them go and that the divorce can continue. In both of these situations, divorce is allowed but is never encouraged. In other words, I believe that based upon the way divorce is spoken of in Scripture, that divorce should be the last option for Christians, not the first. And that even if sexual sin has occurred, reconciliation should be pursued at all costs before divorce is considered. Because this upholds the high view of marriage that God has, and it applies the gospel to a marriage that can bring healing and hope. Now, like the Pharisees of old, there are many today that want to find any reason and every reason to leave their marriages. It's sad that marriage has fallen to such a low in our culture and society that it's not treated with the respect and the honor that God created it to have. But there are others who, and these can be found in the church as well, who want to get out of their marriage or consider it simply because they're in a bad marriage. They're suffering. It's difficult. It hurts. And so they can be tempted to think that divorce is the answer to a bad marriage. And I want to say that I sympathize with all those hurting in their marriage. That's not what God intended. It's not what God wants. But may I gently exhort you to realize that divorce is not the answer to a bad marriage. It does not solve the aches of our hearts. It does not provide what we need and what we're looking for. The answer is found in Christ and following his word as closely as we can. It requires a lot of prayer, requires hard work. There is hope for those who are in a bad marriage. But it will require a steadfast commitment to obey the Lord and to remain faithful to one's vows as God would have you to. And so I just say that for those of you here listening or online, if you're here and you're in one of those bad marriages where you are suffering, we want to help you. We don't want you to suffer alone and suffer silently, but we can't help you if we don't know. And so please, talk to your small group leader. Talk to one of us pastors or elders. We want to come alongside you and assist you in your marriage that you might know the hope and the life 
and the joy that is found in Christ as he seeks to repair what sin has damaged. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about marriage and divorce. I've only scratched the surface here with this one verse. Jesus is surprisingly brief. He doesn't even mention the exceptions here in Luke like he does in Matthew. And so I just say, if you have any specific questions, please come talk to me afterward. Please send me an email. I'd love to interact with those uh, elsewhere. But let's pull back and remember the point of this passage here as we wrap this up. Jesus is giving a response to the Pharisees. They love their money. They mock and ridicule him, and he then responds with a path forward for them, a door of opportunity that shows us how we can turn from the love of money as well. And there's four truths about God that we need to know. In order for our hearts to be freed from the love of money, from any idol, we need to have a clear vision of who God is. It all goes back to looking at the Lord through the lens of the Scriptures. You see, we turn to idols and other things when we lose sight of God. It's only when we grasp Christ and live truly for Him that we'll find the blessings that this world cannot deliver and the treasures this world can never take away. Let's pray and ask God to help us to seek Him and Him alone. Bow with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning that reminds us of the truth of Your Word that nothing else will satisfy. There is no other thing that we can love, that we can bow down, that we can worship, that will satisfy our deepest longings. So, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to think through the ways that we have motives that are less than true, motives that are less than, than honorable, and I ask that you would help us, Lord, to turn away from all the things that this world exalts. May we not be lured and persuaded by that which men exalt. But may we look to your word. May we see that the one to whom you will look is him who is contrite in heart, who trembles at your word. Oh, Father, give us such hearts to see through the clutter of our, of our own lives and the clutter of this world that we might live for heavenly treasures, heavenly glory, and not for the things of this earth. We ask for your Spirit's help in this, Lord. We recognize our weakness. We can't do it without you, and so we cry out to you that you would work in us, Father, that we would be a people that shine a light for you even this week. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.